welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, students, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. I would like to elevate and give a platform to educators and people that have been in the education system to inject the humanity and heart back into education. If you'd like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Thank you so much for joining me today. I cannot believe it's already the 1st of February. For Australian teachers, you would have finished your first week of school. For me, that was professional learning for a day because one of my days off was the first day of professional learning. So I jumped in on the second day and a lot of overthinking and over planning and questioning myself in terms of, you know, can I really do this job? Am I prepared enough? And all the guilt that goes along with having a long break of holidays and being away from the classroom and not sure whether or not you're as prepared as you would like to be. And obviously that was even more exacerbated for me since I'm coming back off family leave from being away for four years. And I had my first year 12 class at the end of the day for English and I really was overthinking so much. I'd had conversations with several of my colleagues asking what they were doing and trying to work out how I kind of wanted my class to go and it's so funny teachers we really do need to trust ourselves don't we because the minute that I walked into that classroom all the nerves went away and I just fed off the dynamics of the room really and where the kids were at and I made a really conscious effort to go around and speak to every single one of the students to talk about what 2020 meant for them and I did that by using their previous year's exams that I'd been given from their teachers the year before So I went around and I said, is this a reflection of you? Is this where you should be sitting? Tell me about how 2020 went for you. And I had some really thoughtful and insightful conversations with the students. Some of them told me that last year was just really hard. Their motivation was sort of at an all-time low and that they didn't want to repeat the year this year in 2021. So I'm just so grateful for that community element in a classroom And yeah, all that worry about whether I knew my stuff and whether I kind of knew what I was doing fell away because the kids were just as supportive of me as I was hoping to be of them in that first class. I'm hoping you guys had a similar experience. This conversation is with Spencer, who is a teacher from Indiana in the US, and it's all around STEM. So if you don't know what STEM is, the acronym stands for Science, Technology, Engineering and Math. And the main premise for it, because we often used to integrate it into science, into science curriculum, but it is at our school, especially it's a standalone subject now. And I think that it can be part of science and maths or it can be its sort of own curriculum. But the big difference is that it's so much more about problem solving, like having a problem and then working out how you want to get there by designing products and projects to ensure that you can actually put into place and to practice theory and see it in real time and then from there to redesign and to look at what went well what didn't go well and how to then rework something so that you can actually fix the flaws and fix the issues so Spencer is really really passionate about STEM He also has his master's in like curriculum development and so he writes a lot of his own plans and things and He has his own TPT store, which we talk about. And I also wanted to say too, in case you don't know what a Rube Goldberg machine is, we talk about that with no real context, except for the fact that we've both done them in classrooms. So it's an incredible physics experiment. It's all about forces. And if you ever played that game Mousetrap back in like the 1990s, it's that, that idea of, you know, one element hits the next element that pushes the next element. So kind of like, you know what, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see it but it's like you know a ball will hit 
a glass that will tip over that will empty water into something that pushes a skateboard. It's that kind of thing of flow on effect and ensuring that you understand how different elements work and, you know, what goes fast, what goes slow, what's going to swing, what's going to pull over, all that kind of thing. So that's a real Rube Goldberg machine and I don't want to take up any more time. But here is Spencer from Indiana. I really like this conversation. We come at it from a quite a different perspective and I really like everything that he has to say. So hopefully you enjoy it. And if you do, please share it on social media with the people that would also enjoy hearing it. Hello, Spencer. How are you? Good. I am so happy to be here today. And I know I've been looking forward to this. So, Oh, me too. Me too. It's amazing how much you can connect through things like Instagram and the internet. You know, you're sitting there in Indiana and here I am in Melbourne. Yeah, it's mind blowing too. And like, even when you were trying to like figure out the time zones and we were messaging each other back and forth, I didn't realize how different time zones actually are. You never really realize it till you have to like set up meetings like this and stuff. And I know I've done the same thing with like people like in India or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the time is so much different. Like it's crazy. Yes, Yes, that's exactly right. So I know that you do have a small time frame we were chatting before that I can often go over. So let's get into it. Can you tell me about some of your educational experiences as a student? Yeah. So as a student, um, I definitely liked going to school. Um, I love the hands-on aspect. I actually talked about this um, a while back with a couple of people, but I actually was like a struggling reader. I actually had to have a tutor. They thought maybe I had a little bit of ADHD Uh, My mom was a teacher and she actually helped me out tremendously, was one of like my big influences in my life. And then I kind of was like, you know what, maybe I'll be a teacher for, you know, because I want to be like my mom who helped me out tremendously um, as a struggling student. And that's kind of why I first got into it. And when I first decided, you know what, I want to do this, I want to make a difference the way people made a difference in my life when, you know, teachers or my mom or whoever didn't necessarily have to, but they chose to. Because I know as a student, I always wanted to really like school and I liked it as much as I could. But for someone who struggled, it was hard. And yeah, when it comes hard. It's never necessarily fun. But she always helped me through it and always told me, you know, you're going to work harder than other kids to have to focus and other things like that. But you're always going to be someone who works harder than they do. And that yeah. always stuck with me, too, because, you know, I always say people might be smarter than me, but they're never going to outwork me because I always like to try to work hard for my students and everyone around me. So. I totally understand that. In fact, now that you say that, I did see on either your podcast or another podcast, you were on the way you were trying to redefine the idea of a tutor. You were saying that there was a stigma around the idea of a tutor. And it's funny because Mm -hmm. if I consider tutoring here, I see it as an element of privilege. People that have tutors, Mm -hmm. often it's because there's access to or more money to afford. So is that not the same in America or what does it kind of sound like for you over there to have a tutor so like yeah over in america it's like a lot of kids get tutors or tutoring happens after school and it's funded through the schools and it's usually for kids who are struggling um or lower like not at benchmark so kids aren't at benchmark a lot of times they'll recommend tutors like my mom helped me helped me a little bit but i also had like a reading tutor and that's why i talked about in that episode about the tutoring but that i mean i thought it was fascinating because she even talked about how like it's kind of become a transition in America okay. where people are starting to get tutors as enrichment ever yeah. since, you know, quarantine happened. Cause they were like, you know, their kids aren't getting the normal enrichments that they normally could get at school. You know, yeah. whether it be like, I know I do like a robotics club, a Lego club, I do all kinds of fun clubs. So those kids aren't able to get that. So like kids are starting to be tutored in those areas so they can get those enrichments, which I think is super cool because yeah. I'm like, I would have loved as a kid to get like, you know, I mean, not necessarily tutoring because I was struggling, but tutoring things that I was interested in and things I excelled at like science. Yeah. And you're seeing that more and more now, especially with the lockdown, do you think? Or was that happening prior to? I think it was maybe helping a little bit prior, but I think mostly because of quarantine. I know a lot of parents I talked to, I did like some different things during quarantine where I did like Facebook lives with my like different families and we did like builds together and we did different like enrichment activities like that and they thought that was really cool and they were saying oh you should do more stuff like this more like tutoring stuff and they kind of viewed that word as like a positive rather than a negative like we see sometimes so I think it's definitely making a transition which which makes me happy because I want kids to get those experiences. It's just really interesting societally how we place certain connotations on words as I said to me I don't Mm -hmm. see tutoring necessarily Especially at high school, I don't see it necessarily as a negative, but I can mm-hmm. see that, as you say, 
bridging gaps in learning, there could potentially be some stigma there. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of those things, like I think it, like I said, I think it's just going to change slowly, but it will change eventually, which makes me happy because I was tutored and reading and some other subjects and I always liked it. Like I loved my tutor. Mm -hmm. I saw her the other day and she was like crying because she was so happy now that I'm a teacher and stuff. And it was just cool to see like, you know, the end result of all of her work and stuff. And it made her happy. And she says she always gets happy when she gets to see other people she tutored too. So I thought that was kind of cool. Absolutely. Well, I've, I've tutored for years and you have a one-on-one relationship, which you don't get to have in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So, and I've had the opportunity of tutoring kids for years. So you see them grow mm-hmm. and develop and become adults. And it's, yeah, it's a real privilege actually. It is. Yeah, for sure. It is. So if you could give yourself any advice or reflection on high school, what would you say to yourself as a high school student? I think like, honestly, one of the things when I look back is I wish I would have tried maybe some different things. Like Mm -hmm. one thing that I always preach to my students is they're always kind of like in their wheelhouse. Like I live in a real rural community in Indiana out in the middle of nowhere and kids are kind of expected to do certain things and they're not supposed to try to try something that's maybe not in their wheelhouse. So like, for example, a lot of the kids are farm kids. Like I grew up a farm kid. I grew up on a huge farm and the expectation was I was going to be a farmer and I didn't need to, study necessarily as hard as everyone else because I didn't need that stuff. Right. Um, Whereas I'm saying, well, you know, you could be a farm kid and you could go into agricultural sciences like, you know, robotic engineering for agricultural. You could go into like soil sampling and all that kind of different stuff. So I just think it's like one of those things that if I could go back and tell myself, it'd be like, hey, try some different things that are maybe not in your wheelhouse. And maybe, you know, you were meant to do those things all along. And you were meant to do something a little bit different. Because I think when I introduce kids to all different kinds of engineers and, t- and tell them, you know, hey, in STEM, you know, we're going to learn about aerospace engineers or we're going to learn about this. They're like, wow, that's really cool. I can do that as a job. Mm. And it kind of blows them away because no one's ever told them any different. And I think that's just so cool to me because it's like that's what education is all about is yeah. letting kids know like, all these possibilities. Like never in a million years would I think I would be, you know, on a podcast like this or – you know what I mean? Doing like a little stuff. I'm like doing like creating my own website for a blog and, you know, having, you know, people talk to me about technology and different stuff like that. So I think creating those opportunities where you can say, hey, this is something you can try. That's maybe not something you're comfortable with yet, but you might be. And I think that's that's what I would go back and tell myself is to do those things. So what were some of your goals at the end of high school? Did you have that understanding yet or you were developing the idea that you could do more than just potentially farming or what were the goals for you? So like when I graduated, actually, the funny thing is I actually was a business major going into, mm-hmm. into, into college. And my goal was definitely that I was like, or the expectation, I guess, was like, oh, you know, I'll probably go to college and I'll probably get some job kind of close to home. That's, you know, something in business. But it was one of those things where when I started, my goals, I guess, were I wasn't really passionate about them. And that's like mm-hmm. one thing, like I just wrote my goals for this year for my classroom, my personal life, my business, everything I do, I write goals out now. And I try to make it more specific because I think at the time, my biggest thing was I was doing business because everyone told me I was a people person. And they're like, hey, mm-hmm. you need to do business. When I just got to a crossroads where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not happy. I don't like it. You know, I'm going to go into education and I think it was hard too because a lot of people were like, you're not going to be happy in education. And really I have been. I love my job. I love what I get to do every day. And I love, you know, after school, a lot of times I work on my business with getting to meet other teachers. And I think it's just the fact that when I was so much younger, I didn't necessarily know how to set goals the way I should have in high school. And I Mm -hmm. feel like that's like something that we could definitely do a better job with high schoolers doing that kind of stuff. And I know it's not easy because you're trying to get them to care about something in an environment where they're burnt out and not necessarily all the way intact like you would like them. <laughs> I think I was actually speaking to someone who is, you know, about 10 years out of high school and what he, he was saying was that it's very hard to know what you want to be. It's such a big plethora of things that you could choose from and at that age and with the limited experiences you have, as you were saying, it's very hard. And often the, the better question is what don't you want yeah. or what are you now? And who do you want to be right now or who are you right now? And start with something you can actually answer because those big open-ended questions often at that age with the experiences that you have, you actually can't narrow it down. And in fact, you have to choose from a limited experiences, a limited understanding of jobs that 
you know, your job might be something you don't even know exists yet mm. at 18, 17. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, is jobs are changing all the time and the experiences for kids are changing all the time. Like I never got computer science exposure when I was in school. Um, and I teach my kids about computer science all the time because programming jobs have shot up through the roof. I mean, they've went up yeah. over hundred percent, like in a year I know in the U S just because they need that many more people to do this versus that um, in programming. So it's like, I'm not going to not expose, you know, my students to that because, you know, maybe one of them will, you know, attach to that thing and be intrigued by it. And like my biggest thing is like my grandma always told me, if you find something you love, you'll never go to work a day in your life. It's true. And that's and I've always loved that. And I've always said that. And that's one of the reasons I actually, you know, like I said, wanted to get into education was because, you know, she said something like that to me. And I was like, you know what? I like farming. I like business stuff. But most of all, I like being with the kids and I like doing what I'm doing. And, you know, maybe five or 10 years down the road, I want to do something different in education. But right now I know I'm exactly where I need to be and I'm happy with it. So it's interesting you were saying to me about the fact that you didn't do any sort of computer work or any kind of computer science at school. Mm -hmm. And yet here you are as a STEM educator and advocate. And if I consider the kind of computer science I did, well, I did computing in year seven and eight. So I would have been 12 and 13 and we learned how to touch type. Oh. So all we did, we put a cover sheet over our keyboard <laughs> and we literally learned how to touch type. And I'm, I'm a great touch typer. However, how often am I typing on a computer? Rarely. I'm often on my phone. Mm. And I didn't know, we didn't even have the concept that by the time I would be in education, everybody would have a digital device in their pocket of which the keyboard is not even structured the same way. And so mm -hmm. I spent two years learning how to touch type and I can touch type, but it's now an antiquated skill. So it's that idea mm -hmm. of having to try and future-proof the next generation. And I, I don't, you might be better off talking to me about this being in the kind of STEM area. How do you think we work on future-proofing education when it's changing so much? I think that's a great question. And that's something that, you know, I think about a lot because, I didn't get, I didn't have computer science either. Like you said, I mean, people at our school, we always did typing like yeah. that. And now, I mean, it wasn't, like I said, an okay skill, but like, I wish I would have learned computer science languages. Yeah. So I think for me, the biggest thing is making sure in a world where everything's at your fingertips that you're trying to stay on the very cutting edge of what's going on for kids. So, you know, whether that be like right now, I'm teaching my kids about basic block programming. Um, and then how to write like an HTML, which would be them actually typing it out. Um, and just those different forms. And there, I think there's up to like 50 languages now of coding. Wow. So let, I mean, exposing them, not to necessarily all of them, but exposing them to enough that you're saying, hey, you know, if you would want to do a website and it have this, this and this, you need to know these languages over here. You know, you know, HTML, which is great in CSS, but you need to know how to do Java and everything else. So when that comes up, I mean, it's just one of those things where I'm trying to make sure I expose them without necessarily knowing where it's going to go. And I hope, I hope that like, yeah. you know, 20 years from now, it is useful for them. But if not, I think a lot of that stuff. And even like when I think back to doing like stuff with computers, when I was a kid, when they were like kind of first starting to have us do stuff, mm -hmm. there's a lot of skills I learned there with like problem solving and critical yeah. thinking skills um, that carried over to my job now. And I think those are the skills that matter. And those are the skills that like, I'm always like, Hey, I'm going to teach these, you know, I'm going to teach the standards because that's what I'm supposed to do. But I'm going to teach problem solving, you know, collaborative learning, all those kind of different skills, I think that are important for an everyday job. Those are the ones that I'm going to be sticking with no matter what, because I think no matter what jobs change or what skills change, or what technology you see, um, those kind of personal skills are the skills that are going to help kids get jobs for sure. I agree. How much room in the curriculum is there for you to embed those skills do you find in, in America? So like for me, my school is pretty great about having me have a lot of freedom in what I can do. Since I'm a curriculum writer, they kind of like trust me, um, mm. give me the go ahead to, I have my master's in like curriculum and instructional development. So I try to embed it and make it like pretty condensed as far as what our students are exposed to. I know when I go to other schools, you know, there's certain things where they're like, this has to be taught um, okay. and this has to be taught in a certain way. So when I go to those schools, um, a lot of times I do PDs and I help schools basically implement STEM either in person or like through a Zoom um, with Naomi, who's like one of my friends and business partners. So 
it's kind of cool to see how different people want to incorporate, I guess, STEM and those different principles in their curriculum, but it's, it's very different. And I think it's crazy because like, even in the U S I'm in Indiana, you know, and at my school, they're like, Oh, that's, you know, you, you can do this, you can do this, you know, whatever. And then I'll go over to Ohio, which is just the next state over. It's not even two hours. And they're like, well, we can do this, but we really can't do this yet. We just don't have enough time or, you know, the resources for it. So I just think it's interesting to see the differences in it. But one thing I've noticed that is consistent is like STEM learning. I make sure I tell them, you know, it's about critical thinking. It's about problem solving like that. It should be what's in the front of that. And what's your kind of your underlying curriculum, what I would call is all the standards being taught. Yes. And that's the, and I think that's the hard part for people to understand. Cause like when I'm teaching a unit about energy, I don't say, Hey, we're learning about forms of energy. I just say, Hey, we're going to build like race cars. And then yeah. like, well, you know, if we have a ramp, how can I make my car go faster if we have the same ramp? And then I, then that's when I kind of introduce it to them because now they're intrigued and they're coming to me for answers and we can kind of learn and grow together. Mm-hmm. I think one of the best units I taught was forces and I'm not a physics teacher and I used to find the physics behind it very challenging but I would do exactly what you just said I had a colleague who was an incredible thinker outside the box and he created a ramp activity exactly as you said and we had certain Mm -hmm. products that they could use and yeah we had to talk about you know the weight of the ball Mm -hmm. the angle you know how you're going to friction all of that kind of stuff and then from there we moved it to a Rube Goldberg machine and that was amazing i do that every year it's so much fun good and the kids love it so much and you naturally understand the forces you're playing with Mm -hmm. because you're seeing it and as i said from a non-physics perspective because i don't i don't have great knowledge as a biology teacher teaching you know junior science Mm -hmm. but that's your way in as a teacher that's your way in create a big task like that and you'll learn with the kids. And when they did, I have to ask you, did you notice how they all maybe took something just a little bit different than the other person? Yeah. And that's always like a cool part to me because it's like, well, this kid, you know, they I feel like they learned more about, you know, potential energy or kinetic energy. And yeah. this kid learned more yeah. about aerodynamics and how to control speed compared to angle. You know what I mean? I think it's cool how you see different kids mm-hmm. grab what they feel is important and apply that. Absolutely. Well, I used to do it because I did it in a class of 26. So I would have like mm-hmm. six different parts of the machine that each group would create and then they'd have to bring them together. And so there was so much problem solving because how did one person's machine end and the other person start? And they had to try and create. It was amazing. And they would have things like balls swinging from one place to the other. They would have things that catapulted off something. I mean, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But it was so amazing. The, I didn't do anything. I literally just stood around mm-hmm. and ensured that the conversation civil <laughs> and if like and I was pretty much just running back and forth to the prep room to get more stuff that's pretty much what I did. they did everything themselves mm-hmm. it was such rich learning I loved what and I love how you said like you felt like you were there but you weren't doing anything because you were almost like the like I always say when you get yourself into stem and this kind of learning whether you do it in you know stem and literacy stem and history whatever you're almost like a commentator between the kids. It's like, yeah. you're just making sure that conversation, you know, keeps on going. And I just try to like produce curriculum and other stuff around that, that kind of complements that. And it's almost like you're on the outside looking in the whole time. And it's kind of cool. Cause it's like, you know, you're just kind of there and you're like, yeah, you know, you're right. You made a good point here. Well, why don't we try this? And just keeping the conversation going. And I know even like today was our first day back at school and like the conversation starting up after break, I thought it would always, like it always does take a while. But today, for some reason, the kids were just like asking questions and talking about things. And it's just one of those things I, I love about STEM and I love about the different kind of learning techniques that are used mm. in it. So you said that you have a master's in curriculum development. Is that correct? Mm, yep. So yeah, curriculum and instructional development. I did it online. And the nice part is in the U.S. There was a, there's a program where you kind of get to do it at your own pace. Nice. So when my wife was pregnant at the time, she was in her first trimester when I started and she was sleeping all the time, which is pretty regular. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, I'll just keep on writing yeah. papers because it was a lot of papers and meetings and tests. So like she would sleep and I would just be down here in my office just working. And I actually got it done in a little less than a year, my master's, right. which was awesome. So I'm glad I definitely have it done. I definitely feel like I learned a lot that I'm able to apply, but it's, it's something that I'm glad I did. But at the time when I went to do it, 
I guess I was a little nervous about like, oh, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to have enough time? That kind of thing. So I'm glad I did it. <laughs> so what kinds of things have you learned at university that were really beneficial for your um, I think one of the most beneficial things that like I kind of learned from getting my um, the whole curriculum aspect and the instructional aspect of STEM is benchmark because when we're looking at like, you know, if it's informal testing versus formative or informal versus formative assessment, people are always wondering like, do I really need to do that in STEM? How do I do it yeah. and make it kind of flow naturally? Um, and I think being able to do like a capstone um, in your master's, which everyone has to do one kind of like your almost like your, um, I don't know what you would also call it. Like other people call it something. I forget what the word is, but. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. And it's like basically in a capstone, you create like a thesis and a sentence and it's all about how you're going to approach learning and show that you grew basically our students grew in a lesson through quantitative or qualitative research, which is basically like, you know, fancy words for saying, Hey, you're going to take a lot of kids and you're going to see what they know before. And you're going to see what they know after. And I think that hard, that was nice for me because in STEM, I always struggled with saying like, you know, we need to sit down and we need to do more informal assessments or more formative. Mm -hmm. So for me to get organized and be able to do that more and to talk to others about how to do it, I think it really helps them because one of the biggest things that schools don't want to use STEM is because they're like, well, there's just not enough assessment there. There's just not enough concrete evidence that it's working, number one. And number two, that, you know, it's not just all about building. Like kids are actually understanding this and are being able to apply it. So I think, you know, when I kind of learned that, I said, wow, you know, I could really do this or I could even, you know, do different forms of assessment that I know kids are going to be able to say, wow, I truly understand this. Um, and for my capstone, I actually did one about chemical reactions. So kids built rockets using test tubes and corks, and they try to use baking soda and vinegar like you normally would with a vo- volcano, but to figure out what could create the greatest air pressure to launch the rocket yep. highest in the air. So what combination exactly would create that and what are some you know controlled factors that would maybe even make it go higher? So they were trying all kinds of different combinations, and it was really cool. Because then by the end of the week, they, you know, they understood why there was a chemical reaction. Why do chemical reactions happen? Could we do a control to see, you know, which different kind of liquid versus gas is doing what? And just all that different stuff, they were able to see and they were able to say, I truly understand this. Not only through like a test, so I had them do a pretest and a post-test, but telling me verbally, verbally, I mean, I could hardly say that. And then being able to show me by having their rocket launch off. And it's kind of funny because my ceiling's not super high in my STEM room. Mm-hmm. And I actually had one kid's rocket go up, hit a ceiling tile, and put like a little miniature hole in it. And I was like, oh no, like I'm probably going to get in trouble for that one. But <laughs> it is I what it know, is. So. Pretty, of, a good, of a good lesson. <laughs> yeah, it was. And it, every year of the kids, it's one of their favorites. It's funny. I think the older I got or the more experienced I got, the less hands-on I felt I had to be and the less controlled I had to be and especially Mm -hmm. in year seven science I would find that teaching kids about experimental design never got in you know I talk about controls I talk about variables and it was just another definition that they wrote down so eventually I got bold enough I suppose to say look here is the experimental design you know you have a hypothesis and aim you have to write a replicable method And I would get the kids to design their own experiment based on something that they wanted to do. And it was by far the best way to get that information cemented in their brain because we looked at things that failed, we looked at things that worked, we looked at whether or not their method was replicable. Could somebody else pick up your experiment and do it again? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you always get your Mentos and Coke experiments because they're year seven and they love doing that. But then you've got to work out, well, what's the variable here? What are you changing? How are you shifting what you're testing? And so I think that that's where STEM is trying to move curriculum, isn't it? It's Mm. that student agency and investment back into their work. Yes. And I think like so much a student, like you said, voice and choice, really it's all about self-exploration, you know, like what can you discover without me having to come over and explicitly tell you, you know, what you should exactly be doing. And I think that's hard for some kids. And teachers. Yes. And it's hard for teachers and students. You're you're not wrong about that. And like my first year, I know it was hard for me. And I've always kind of seen from the outside looking in, that's always harder for like students that normally traditionally do well in a traditional school Yes, because they're used to teachers being like, 
Here's the answers. Yes. Memorize them. They memorize them. They get an A plus on the test. They're happy. Yes. Um, and those kids always struggle with me because they're like, well, you're not telling me exactly what I need to know. And I'm like, I'm not going to. And they get, they get kind of upset with me, which I understand because they're very used to a different structure. So for them to understand this different structure, I think once they understand why I'm doing it and they have the aha moment or they're excited about a project is when I'm like, yes, now you get it. Now you understand. Now let's run with it and try this new thing. Like you said, and try something, you know, that's maybe just a little bit different for an experiment. Yeah. But the thing is, is that school is structured for those kids, right? School is structured Mm -hmm. for the kids that want to be able to rote learn and regurgitate. But there's a whole heap of kids sitting in that room that their needs are not being met. And so that's why subjects like STEM need to be in because they have an opportunity to shine in which they would never have -hmm. an opportunity to step up and, and show how how skilled they are. I was having a conversation with someone the other day that they saw being smart as the pinnacle of a compliment. And I was saying to them, but being smart is one thing, mm-hmm. academically smart, one mm-hmm. thing. You can also be creative. You can be a really great conversationalist. You can be an incredible cook. And, and there's so many things that we can be. And yet we always hang our hat on how smart we are, mm-hmm. how clever we are, how well we do at school. And yeah, because it's it's you can qualify it, you can get a score, and you can say, "Well, I got this," and therefore that defines mm-hmm. you. But at the end of the day, there are so many different things that we're good at that aren't mm-hmm. the same that have just as much value in society, especially out in the workforce. I mean, I'm sure that yeah, you do need people in certain roles that can regurgitate and analyze. That's really important. But you need free thinkers, you need problem solvers, you need conversationalists, and there's so many skills and are we giving those kids the opportunity to showcase that? And I, and I love how you said there's so many different skills. And I think, you know, one thing that always has kind of bothered me is like, well, like the reason we always talk about the scores and kids being, you know, quote unquote school smart Mm. is that, you know, we give scholarships out for that. We give, you know, awards out for that. We don't give awards out for being creative or a good problem solver, a good conversationalist, like you said. And I've always thought that I'm like, you know what, it would be nice to see those other kids kind of in the middle that are maybe a little misunderstood, you know, Mm -hmm. be rewarded for that because those are usually the kids I feel like I hear about or even like I know when I went to school, there was kids I went to school that people were like, man, that kid, he might not even make it. Like he isn't going to make it. Like what the teachers would say. And now I'm like, now he owns his own business and he does X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, he's doing better than anyone else. And I would, and I'm like, my thought is I always kind of thought that about him because I knew he was super creative and, you know, outgoing and that kind of thing. So I feel like there's just more than one measure, like you said, and it, it's nice to know that like other educators feel that way. Cause sometimes I feel that way. And I'm like, am I the only one that's seeing this, you know, this kind of system Definitely where, not. yeah. <laughs> it's- Definitely not. I also see it too in my conversations with people outside of education. Mm-hmm. I, I was having a chat to two of my friends yesterday that work in finance and they were saying that there's only so much room for people that can regurgitate and analyze. We actually need so many other skills that some people just have to have them. They're actually very hard to teach. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you said before, the scary part in education and for educators is the fact that how do we get that qualifying data? How do Mm -hmm. we get that finite score at the end? So what are some of the assessment measures that you're using to make sure that you are getting that information by the end of a STEM course or a, or a curriculum unit. I love that you mentioned this too, because this is something that's always on my mind. And when I do PDs, people ask this question a lot, because I, I feel like it's not fair to just give one form of assessment or, you know, just do one formal. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I try to do different forms every single time kids are with me. Like right now, I even have a fifth grade group where they're doing some different makerspace stuff. So This week, we're going to do some different rubrics. We're going to do some check-ins as far as Google Forms. And I'm not going to be grading them on necessarily whether they're right or wrong on questions. Um, I'm going to be grading them on how they can analyze their project. So, you know, if they make a rocket ship, what is one thing you like about your rocket ship? Well, I like this because I learned X, Y, Z. You know, what is something you could improve? I could improve this because X, Y, and Z. Um, And then usually one day I have a little table in the back of my room and I call it like the small group meeting. So I have like just a meeting with them like, hey, you know, how's it going for you? What are some things you Mm -hmm. feel like you learn and you understand and some things you don't? So that's kind of for those kids that are conversational and they can talk about things better than they can type them out. Because I know one thing that I'm still working on personally for me has always been when I type, 
since I'm a little bit ADHD, I tend to type one idea and then all of a sudden it rambles onto the next one and it doesn't make sense to other people. Um, but when I read it back, I can fix it and make it sound all right. Cause I've learned to do that. But when I was younger, I would always do a lot better when people would ask me questions verbally. So I like to do a little bit of informal versus formal assessment. So I always try to like compliment one type of kid, maybe with another type of kid, because I just feel like it's unfair to measure, you know, all the kids on one scale that I know certain ones are going to succeed. And I've always heard the saying, you can't judge a fish on how well it can climb a tree because you you can't do that. Really? Yeah. And, that's, and yeah. that's one thing I've always told the kids. And they're like, yeah, that's true. And they probably don't understand quite what I mean. But I do under, I always explain to them exactly how I'm going to assess this project. So I'm like, I don't want there to be any surprises. And really, I'm like, it should be something you enjoy and understand. And assessment should be all about how you grew, not about necessarily what you learned compared to somebody else. I'm wondering too if we can give them even more autonomy over their assessment and say these these are the various ways we could assess. Mm -hmm. As a collective in this classroom, what would you like us to do? Would you like us to have this and this? Mm -hmm. Would you like it to be purely tests? Like I'm wondering again if that's another way of creating student voices to encourage them the opportunity to be a part of how we assess for them in certain certain units. I mean, some sometimes you have to do something. I understand that that that's kind of a greater overriding government's right. you know decision. But I am wondering whether or not they have there is opportunity more for them to go. You know, I'd actually really prefer to have a chat with you. I'd really prefer to do this in a group. I'd really prefer to have an opportunity to do this by myself. Right. Whether we can do that more. And that's one thing I actually I tried doing something kind of close to that because I was wondering the one time I did a mm. egg drop challenge. Um, with a bunch of my kids I've done that too. Yeah. and they loved it and I wanted to make it just a little bit different than what everyone else was doing so I always I had like a google form where they had like a little check-in I had like a little five point little multiple choice quiz about what we learned and then I said you know your third option could be flipgrid so I use flipgrid which is like where you record yourself and the kids can go watch that video and respond to that video I can see it I'm um, just answering those questions instead. So I gave them like three or four different choices on how they basically are being assessed cool. without them knowing. Cause I just said like, Hey, I called it like a check-in. I just said, Hey, these are some check-ins that I'm going to do to make sure you're understanding what we're doing this week. And it was actually during an observation from my principal. And she was like, that was really cool how you gave them three different yes. choices rather than saying, this is the way you're going to do it. I think kids like that. I, th- <laughs> I think they do. Yeah. Too. I think that's a great what did you say? What's the flip? What's that? Flipgrid. So it's, it's, a it's a website where you can go on your kids can like I went on as a teacher and I made a board called like STEM and I called it, I think I called it egg drop challenge. And so the kids, I give them that yeah. link, they press it and then they can go record a video. They can put stickers on it, their little video. They can edit it a little bit. Um, they can put filters and they can like answer questions that I have. So on like the egg drop one, I could say, Hey, when I dropped your egg, did you see your egg compress? What are some different science concepts you saw when we dropped your egg? And then they would record a video answering that question. Um, and then I can go back and I can grade all their videos individually. And I can also have kids respond to their videos, giving them like constructive feedback on that website. So Flipgrid's actually 100% free too. So it's a great website. It's like one of my favorite STEM tools and tech tools to use. Okay, I'm going to put the information for that in the show notes because that yeah, you can. Cool. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> Other than STEM, mm-hmm. what are you really, really passionate about as an educator? What do you want your students to leave with after a year with you or some time with you in a classroom? I love that question because one thing that I started, I'm starting to do this year is each month I'm doing like different themes mm. um, about things I'm kind of passionate about, whether it's in STEM or the STEM realm of STEM. So like, for example, this month I'm doing Makerspace and next month I'm going to do like no one really knows this yet, but I guess everyone will now is like K1 activities for, or like toddler activities that are STEM related. Um, And I, and I think like the big overlying theme of all 12 months is going to be like, I want kids to have a hands-on experience that is going to change their life in some way or another. Cause I know like when I did my first STEM lesson, like I was hooked. Like I was like, you know what? I wish more people would have done something like this with me. And that's kind of always been my end goal. And my challenge is how can I, present this to kids in a way that I know it's going to make them say, wow, you know, that was really fun. That didn't feel like I was in a classroom. Like it just felt different than what I'm used to. Like I even had a kid this year look at me and they were like, Mr. Sharp, you're not a teacher. You have way too much fun to be a teacher. And I'm like, that is the best compliment you could give me. I don't think they meant it that way, but I took it that way. And ever since they 
ever since they told me that way, I kind of started building, you know, my calendar for what I'm going to be doing this year. And I just told myself, you know, my goal this year is to make sure that teachers and students don't have to feel like they have to, you know, go by the script and they have to make something that, you know, necessarily isn't who they want to be as a teacher and who they want their students to be as students. It's outside the box and it's just something that's different that makes me excited. The flip side I would say to that too is you go into a STEM class and you're hooked. A lot of people Mm -hmm. would walk into a STEM class, including myself as a student, and would be so intimidated because I would Um, have had the skills as somebody who sat in a classroom and learnt the way traditional classrooms had been set up Mm-hmm. I see an Ikea box and I freak out. Do you know what I mean? Like I, mm-hmm. that's how my brain goes. And so I think that the more that we are exposed to these different skills and opportunities and that's life, there's so oh, many yeah. things in life that you can't ever get an answer to. You have to know the way to get there. And mm-hmm. it has to also be in alignment with yourself as well. And that's the problem is that often we're so busy giving our power away and being told what the answer is that we're not willing to look within to find it. Yes. And so I think that the more we can expose students to these different scenarios, the less intimidated they'll be, the more willing they are to give it a go, the more willing they are to go, okay, well, I've seen this before. I know that I'm not going to have an answer right now, but I know that I'm, if I do X, Y, Z, that's how I'm going to get to a place of understanding. Mm-hmm. And I love how you said like too, like some kids definitely do get intimidated. I'm glad you brought that up too, because today actually I had Ooh. a new student and like I was, I'm so like busy because all my kids that I've had, I have them K through six. So by this point, the kids that have had me for five years, they know that they know the drill. They know that we come in in Monday and in STEM, we define the problem. The next day we draw it, then we build it. And they know there's a process. So I kind of felt bad because there's a new kid today, of course. And I, it just kind of happened in the mix. I was like, you know, explaining, you know, we're doing sleds this unit, you know, you get to build your ramp. And we're talking about speed and I'm going on and on. And they're just looking like, what is going on in here? Because they never mm-hmm. heard of STEM. And like, to me, I was just yeah. like, that must have been so overwhelming. And I told them after yeah. class, I'm like, I am so sorry that happened <laughs> to you today. And they're like, no, it sounded really fun. It was just a lot to take in. And I'm like, no, I get yeah. it. And they were a sixth grader. So like, I'm like, it was coming from like a pretty mature point of view mm-hmm. compared to like my K through five. And I said, you know, it was probably a lot and it was very different. She's like, yeah, it was loud and usually classrooms aren't loud and people were just kind of getting up getting things walking around and you know building in their areas that we have now because of covid they kind of all have their own areas and sections they pick from and she was like it was just all a little bit overwhelming though and i was like i get that and i think like you said you know one of the cool things about it is when kids are exposed to those opportunities like she was you know she's gonna come in tomorrow and she's gonna learn a little bit more and she's gonna come in and her willingness to learn is going to flip and so you know, maybe someday she gets in a job and they said, hey, how, you know, fast can you learn this program? Well, she could say, well, I can, I can do it pretty, you know, I could do it in a day or two because she, you know, has yeah. that, oh, I can do it kind of attitude or, you know, I can figure things out because I know I've been in STEM and I had to figure out X, Y, Z so many times. So, yeah. My next question is what does good learning look like? Only because of what you just said then about what mm-hmm. your classroom looked like today. Yeah. What is learning? How does it look to you? So the funny thing is I actually had like a tweet, I think, or I had something on Instagram a while back where I said, this is what learning looks like. And I and it was like right before COVID. So it was a while back when I think about it now. But like it was like everyone was talking. There was conversations going on. Kids were cutting things. They were talking to me. They were drawing things on the whiteboard. They were measuring things out. I just feel like good learning to me looks busy and it looks like there's a lot going on. And I know like when I have people come and visit our school, our prince, our principal is very proud of our STEM program because me and her, we started it five years ago together kind of. Um, and it's really grown and flourished. So when people come, they're always like, man, there was so much going on. Like she's like, and like when people come in, they just start talking to kids and kids just start talking to them and they're just having conversations. And they're like, it's almost like being like in just like a little room where, you know, creativity can just flow free so to speak. Yeah. Kids are just having conversations and saying, you know, well, here's what I saw. And, you know, maybe the person in their group or someone else goes, well, here's what I saw. And they're able to kind of put ideas together. So I feel like learning for me just looks like so much different than it probably does traditional teacher because it's just going to look like chaos to them almost. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I was talking to a young teacher at my school and he was saying that as part of his teaching rounds, he was actually chastised for creating a classroom like that. 
by his mm-hmm. supervising teacher because oh, wow. you know he was having a lot of conversation. It was and yeah, potentially it was chaotic, but it was he was it was very immersive. He was part of all of the conversations. They were all on task. And the supervising teacher said, how did you think it went? And he said, I was really excited about it. I was really excited by the conversations I got around to every kid, you know, as opposed to a traditional lesson in which you would be at the board, not really interacting much except Mm -hmm. for a hand up every now and then. And usually they're very specific kids that put their hands up. And the flip side of that is you choose kids and then to create potentially some anxiety if they're not ready to be chosen. Mm -hmm. And the supervising teacher said, well, I disagree. I think it was an absolute mess. You didn't, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. And he actually very boldly said, I don't agree. That's how you like to teach. You like it to be quiet and to be controlled mm. and you get certain results. However, this is how I'd like to do it. And I think that that's the shift that's going on right now. Mm. The big shift in what learning looks like and how students are engaging and the world is shifting so much that these skills are more important than the content at this point. Oh, yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head, too, because like you see a different generation of teachers that they were taught like, you know, which I mean, there's positive and negatives to both. And there's a time and place for all kinds of different teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's crazy, too, because I've kind of had that same scenario where, you know, I taught a lesson and I actually had um, at our school, our principal has teachers go around to other rooms and kind of watch other teachers teach kind of as like a in building PD so to speak. And there's a couple of teachers that came into mine and they were like, man, it was just like organized chaos is what it was. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's basically what it was. And they were just like, they weren't saying it wasn't right or wrong. They just said, I couldn't do that was their biggest thing because they weren't taught to teach that way. And I'm like, that's a very good way to word it because I was taught to teach this way. And I feel like it works very well because, you know, one of my favorite professors in college, I still talk to this day. He always talks about how even in his like science inquiry college class, he's like, it's all about conversations. He's like, I tell him all the time. It's about conversations. He's like, one of my favorite things to do with them is a scientific notebook. And he's like, because he's like, I feel like we have our best conversations and our best learning when we're doing it together. You know, we're using cooperative learning skills and all those different skills we've talked about. And yeah, I just think it's very different than it used to be. And I see that change happening a lot too. And I hear a lot of people that are younger always reaching out to me saying like, Hey, what do you think about this? Which I think it's, it's great. I mean, mm-hmm. you gotta, you gotta figure out what works for you as a teacher and your style and what's going to be your thing that makes you stick out to students. Yeah, I agree. And a way that you can get them in and involved and it doesn't exactly. have to be everybody, mm-hmm. but I think being open to the fact that it might not look the way you were taught is important. It's taken me too long. I feel to get to that place. <laughs> And I mean, that's, that's easy to be too, because it's like, even in my student teaching, I was in a traditional classroom mm-hmm. um, and I just took a couple STEM classes and I was really by the book. I did everything, you know, exactly how my teachers did it. Um, it wasn't until I had the STEM position and I asked my principal, I'm like, what kind of curriculum am I going to be teaching? She's like, that's the best part. You get to design the curriculum, mm-hmm. you know, and you get to do it the way you want to do it. And so I kind of came up with this vision and this process and this classroom management strategy that I knew would reap good products and good end results for my kids while learning and learning skills that I feel are important. And I tell people all the time when I go to different meetings for different stuff for the state of Indiana, you know, I do things, you know, a certain way because I feel like they're going to work. That's not going to work for everyone. Mm -hmm. But I always say, you know, these skills, these kids are learning, they need to be taught everywhere because I feel like they're very important. So that's one thing I'm pretty passionate about, I think, is like, you know, you can do it whatever way you want to, because I know other people that do it a little bit different than me and they still get the same results. So, yeah. How do you get kids to engage in STEM that are intimidated or aren't naturally interested in that way of learning? How do you get engagement? Great question. Student engagement, I think, from all kids is always very tough, but it's always about, like we talked about earlier, kind of like the different kids you see. And one thing I did in my first year, and I don't always do it, but I, I tend to do it when, you know, there's kids that maybe aren't as engaged. I either try to, number one, you know, maybe do like a maker space type of theme. So that's kind of a little bit different than STEM when they get to kind of choose their product uh, project. So mm-hmm. like I'm doing it this week and there's one girl in there that I can never really get to buy into everything. And she wanted to make, oh, what is she making? It was like, I can't think of, oh, she wanted to make a cardboard bakery. Mm-hmm. And so now she's getting into measurements. Um, we're talking about how to make things square. We're talking about like a lot of, 
what I would consider like construction traits okay. for her. And she, and she really likes that. And I think that kind of gets her to buy in. The other thing I like to try to do is when before COVID, I should say, um, was give kids jobs in their groups. Mm-hmm. So it kind of helped them, you know, do something small. Cause I feel like a lot of times when kids don't buy in, they're overwhelmed. Yeah. So, you know, there'd be a kid that's the speaker. There'd be a kid that's collects all the data when we go to test our design and there would be a kid that would be the materials gatherer so they would go and get all the materials from me and have conversations with me about their materials Um, and just different jobs like that make them feel like hey I just got to do this one thing and you know maybe they do put input a little bit for something else but you know it gets them to buy into the project and want to be part of the process yeah so for teachers that aren't necessarily as comfortable creating the curriculum around STEM. Mm-hmm. You do have a Teachers Pay Teachers store. Can you I tell do. me about what kind of resources you have on there? Yeah. So it, it's kind of crazy because like I never thought I would start a Teachers Pay Teachers store. But during quarantine last year in February is when I was like, you know what? I have people all the time because I speak at a lot of conferences be like, you know what? You need to start one. So I was like, you know what? I'll start one. Um, and my friend actually who is in design created me a logo and oh, instead of cool. being Bob the Builder, like a TV, the TV show, he named it Sharp the Builder. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like a play on words. And basically, I just put all the different fun activities I do in my room or I make for other classroom teachers who are wanting like enrichment in their room. So I have anything from like full on units that I teach to like STEM task cards, mm-hmm. which a lot of like people that I help implement STEM in the room, they take those little cards put random materials in it, like in a bag or an art box, and they give it to kids when they have extra time for like early finishers. I also have like morning work on there that's like aimed at critical thinking skills and growing those skills. So I basically try to put things on my store that intrigued me as a teacher and that my kids like. I never put things up there that my kids think is really boring. So for like example, one of the best things on my store that has always done the best that teachers have always really liked is my Rube Goldberg one. So I have that Rube Goldberg one up there and I actually did it during quarantine. So it's like a remote learning Rube Goldberg. And I actually have a couple of videos on there that like were remote were um, Rube Rube Goldberg that my kids did in March. Mm -hmm. And that was one of my favorites. And that was when I really was like, wow, you know, I really like creating resources for teachers pay teachers like this month I'm making a bunch of makerspace stuff and like I said it's just something that I never thought I would necessarily do when I first started teaching and then enough people were like you know the blog is interesting and that but they're like you need to start doing that stuff so I was like okay I'll do it and it's just something else like I add to my plate that I really enjoy I guess and it's fun <laughs> plus you have a podcast the innovative yeah. podcast with Naomi Meredith so the kind of cool part about her is we've never met she lives in Colorado and I live on, and I live in, in, in wow. Indiana. Yeah. So we, we meet once a week, usually zoom. We do one episode a week and it's kind of fun because like I said, we met that way. She teaches STEM. I teach STEM, but I teach it a little bit different than the way she teaches it. So it's kind of cool. Cause we get to talk about concepts, concepts and different things about how we teach STEM and how they're a little bit different, but we can always make it fit into any everyday classroom um, in any subject, really. So it's it's fun because, like I said, I've always really liked to talk, and <laughs> as you can probably tell, and I never thought I would do something where people would be like, and you get this probably too with your podcast, like people reach out to you and you'd be like, you know what, that episode, it was really cool and it really yeah. motivated me. And I'm always like, that's why I wanted to do this. Like I never thought that would happen. It happens a couple of times and you're like, wow, I want to do this more. So <laughs> I've literally the last two days, I had someone say to me that they're going to start their own podcast now after listening. And I had another person just tag me in a post on Instagram, creating their own teachergram. That is awesome. I was like, oh, this is incredible. So I'm obviously creating or normalizing or inviting people Mm -hmm. into the space, which is amazing. That's what teachers are built to do. Yeah. And like the cool part is like when I started it, I was like, well, Naomi kind of, like I said, we kind of got this idea together and I was like, you know what, I, I think it'd be so cool to interview teachers on there. And not only that, but it's like, it's open doors for me to be interviewed on other podcasts, which I love. Yeah. Like I've been on like two or three of them where I'm like, wow, that was just really fun. You know, meeting someone new and someone different and even like ours, because you're from Australia. I've never been to Australia. I've always wanted to go. And I've always thought it was like a cool place. And I'm like, this is just cool. You know, talking to someone that yeah. a place I've never been. So yeah, and to and to see that there is a universal element to education too. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that we are in completely different continents and yet 
we, through our own educational experiences, both as teachers and students, have come to very similar ideas around education. It just goes to show Mm. that the world is moving in the same way and we are seeing it through the same lens, which I think is very unifying. Yes. I think that's, and yeah, that's really cool to me. And the fact that you said that, I was like, gave me chills a little bit because, (laughs) yeah, because I mean, we're, I mean, like I've always said, we're always in all this together and, you know, we all have the same common goal when it comes at the end of the day and that's creating the best experience for our kids and we want the best for them. And that's what makes education so great because I feel like it's one of those things where no matter where you are, you're one big family. Absolutely. What are some of your big hopes for education moving forward? Wow. That's a big question. It is. I like that. I like that question though, because I think my biggest hope is that at least here in the U S one of the biggest problems we have right now is teacher retention. Mm -hmm. It's at all time high, obviously with everything going on. I just hope we can continue um, to get good teachers in that care. Cause I even told my wife the other day we were talking about, she was saying, Hey, you know, how long do you think you're going to teach? And I said, you know, I'm going to teach as long as I'm passionate about it. One thing I hated as a student was when I had a teacher that just did not care at all. Like they were just doing it because they're like, you know what? I got a couple more years. I'm just going to do it. And then I'm going to retire kind of thing. And mm. I always told myself, you know, if I'm not passionate about it, I don't want to do it. But I understand why there's a teacher retention rate, but I hope, you know, we get passionate people about it. So if, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I am super passionate about it, but, you know, people have told me I don't need to get into teaching, please do. Because, I mean, if you're passionate about it, you're not going to be able to stay away from it. That's what passion is. So Absolutely. And also, I think the flip side of that, if you are becoming cynical and bitter within the profession, find a niche in which your passion can be reignited somehow. Like, as you yeah. say, with I mean, that's we, that was not a thing when I was at school. You know, there are things coming up and, you know, create a robotics program or mm-hmm. find something within the education system that can create that passion for you because there will be something somewhere oh, yeah. that you're still interested in, even though, you know, you might be deflated by the profession and by the politics of it all. And if, and if, you're, ni- and if you're niche or niche or however you want to say that isn't out there. Alien, maybe, no. maybe it's. I say it literally every time I say it, I say it both ways because I've heard it okay. both ways. But no matter what you're, you know, if you think you have one or you don't have one or you're like, oh, I, I have this idea, but I don't think that is one. You could create one, which I think would be awesome. Like yeah. I, know, I know people that they were some of the first people in Indiana to kind of get into green screen recording. Like this is probably like five or 10 years ago. Like started to get into like the green screen recording for like Legos, like the little minifigures. And then they started doing like um, stop motion. And I'm like, that was so cool that you were one of the first people to get into it. And when you got into it, you probably thought you were felt really lonely. And now like a lot of people use that kind of stuff. You know, they have companies that they sell that stuff specifically for students. So it's like, you know, if you're super passionate about something, you can fit it into education. I know you can. You have to be. Yeah. Last question for you, Spencer, Mm -hmm. is what are some of the biggest lessons you have learned in life? And they do not have to be academic. Life lessons. Ooh, I like that. I think, you know, some of the biggest life lessons I've learned just from, I would say, being a teacher and just the different path I've chosen with STEM is you can learn something new every single day and you can never stop growing in your life if you choose to be that way. If you choose to be open-minded and choose to say, you know, I can keep on growing. And I think that has made me a happier person. Cause I know, like I said earlier, when I was in business, I just wasn't as happy because I wasn't necessarily in it because I loved it. And, you know, when you find something you love and you want to learn more about, and you're going out listening to podcasts about it and you're going to blogs and you're meeting more friends because in that career field, you're going to give yourself better results and you're going to give your school better results and you're just going to be happier overall, which I think is just what matters most, you know? You got to do what makes you happy. So, absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me your yeah. time. No, I appreciate you having me on. I'm so glad we found a time that worked for both of us. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. And it's been, yeah, it's been really inspiring actually to speak to you and to hear what you're doing in STEM. I think it's fantastic. Yes. Thank you so much for having me.